This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello and welcome to The North in Numbers, a podcast that gets the human stories behind the stats. I'll be your host, Annie Goke. As a data journalist, I write local news stories based on statistics for regional papers up and down the country. Each fortnight, I'll be looking at the figures that particularly affect the North and speaking to experts and those most affected to get their take on the issues facing our communities. This week, I'll be looking at the boom in restaurants and cafes seen across the North, with a particular focus on Newcastle. You'll hear from some of the chefs and entrepreneurs that have started a food business in the last few years, as well as hospitality industry experts. I really like it here. Um, I'm proud of the city and that it's nice to see um, so many talented people doing things in the region and especially like the amount of kind of small talented restaurants that are like chef, like local chef led now. Um, all these food events, the people, the people, the guys at Wyland Brewery, all of the stuff that they've done. There's just there is all of the like local brewers and there's even a woman producing wine in Gateshead now, um, and it's nice that didn't exist. And I think uh, Newcastle is probably a bit behind places like Leeds, Manchester, Edinburgh, um, and so to kind of be involved in catching up to our surrounding cities is quite a nice thing to be involved in. <laughs> that was Anna Hedworth, a food blogger who opened the Cookhouse in Newcastle more than five years ago. Originally operating from a shipping container, in the last few months they have since moved to a much bigger bricks and mortar premises in the city. She's part of a foodie revolution in the north that has seen an explosion in the number of restaurants and cafes operating across the region over the last 10 years. Figures from the Office for National Statistics show that there are now 12,915 restaurants and cafes open across the north, an increase of 61% since 2010, when there were 8,005. It's much faster growth than what's been seen in London, and is particularly pronounced in major cities. Tom Hetherington is the Chief Executive of Northern Restaurant and Bar, or NRB, the biggest hospitality exhibition in the north of England, which will be taking place on the 17th and 18th of March next year. Growth in cities like Manchester and Leeds and Liverpool and Newcastle is running at around three times the level of restaurant growth seen in London. Uh, so it's, it's significantly outpacing what's happening in the capital, what's happening in the, in the south of England. As to what's driving it, I think it is uh, a combination of things. I think historically there's probably been an undersupply of restaurants and bars in the north of England. Um, and I think it is due to changing populations, particularly in the cities. Uh, you're seeing northern cities, post-industrial cities, which were almost starved of, of kind of urban populations over the last few decades are now repopulating. They're, they're filling, people are living in the city centre, people who like to go out, who have the money to spend to do so. So it's partly about those changing 
populations and then I suppose it's partly a broader cultural thing that people are just more interested in restaurants now they're more interested in eating out so there's that kind of underlying cultural shift and trend as well. As Tom mentioned Newcastle is one of the northern cities that are seeing particularly impressive growth when it comes to the number of restaurants. There are currently around 395 restaurants and cafes in the city up from 360 in 2018 and just 245 in 2010. Gareth Beatty is the head chef of Brinkburn Street Brewery, Bar and Kitchen, which opened in Newcastle last year. The restaurant is on the same site as the brewery itself, and the beer brewed there is an ingredient in many of the dishes on the menu. Gareth believes the boom in restaurants seen in Newcastle is firmly linked with a similar rise in the number of local breweries. The thing that I find amazing about Newcastle is the amount of breweries. I think there's about 70 breweries in Newcastle, all small, micro, nano, larger ones, but they're all decent, they're all producing good beer, and each one, you know, if you're producing beer, it, it lends itself to having a tap room or somewhere you can sell your beer, and then you've got food attached to that, so a lot of places, breweries and tap rooms tend to have a street food vendor in there, it's just an easy way to do it, but I think the fact that all these places are opening, these beer places, all these other food restaurant orientated places are opening in their wake and it's a really interesting thing to see that it's not restaurants and wine and food it's breweries and beer and snacks and street foods you know what really stands out when speaking to chefs and restaurant owners in the city is how many of them are taking advantage of local ingredients championing the best the area has to offer that includes the cookhouse and Brinkbread street bar and kitchen but they're not alone Riley's Fish Shack has become one of the Northeast's most loved restaurants after opening as a pop-up in Newcastle in 2013. With a permanent restaurant launched on the beach at King Edwards Bay four years ago, it regularly sees huge queues stretch out the door. Owner Adam Riley explains that all their fish is locally caught. We go to the fish market every morning, Monday to Friday. Um, we buy whatever's available. Um, and so all the, the menu is, is steered by whatever's on the market you know, that day. It's what we've got on the doorstep, you know, it's like, I think... Um, in the summer, actually, this, I've never seen dolphins quite as frequently, but three times a week, dolphins would be jumping in the bay, you know, and it's just like, you, there's nothing else. I don't see why you'd want to be eating anything else, really. Max Scott is another restaurant owner that is making the most of nature's local bounty. His restaurant, Bistro 46, which he runs with brother Ben, serves local game and forage ingredients from nearby Northumberland. He says that restaurants from further afield are also starting to take notice of the area. Uh, we head out at least two or three times a week for mushrooms, herbs seaweeds um, but then we also got twice a week shooting not everything we use is shot by us but we work with two local shoots so the pheasants the grouse the partridge and we get direct off them but then most of the deer the rabbits hares squirrels is all shot by us people are paying more attention uh, particularly to the ingredients and stuff we have ken holland who grows veg for us a couple of other restaurants but then there's restaurants in london having them couriered down there um, which i think is a nice it's a nice touch. It's a nice thing that they're looking up in this direction to, to source their ingredients. You know, they, they've realised Northumberland has some of the best stuff in the country or the world, from wild game to you know, even like forage stuff that's picked up here and delivered down there. What's also interesting is that, like those featured here, most of the new restaurants popping up over the last few years have been independents rather than chains. Tom from NRB explains that it's these smaller businesses, where the owner is usually involved with the actual running of the restaurant, that have been the major driving force behind the foodie boom. We did some we did some data analysis with uh, CGA a couple of years ago, looking particularly at the independent restaurant sector out of the major cities. Newcastle was actually the highest growth, um, and Leeds was very high as well. 
they both had about 13% growth in independent restaurants over a three-year period. And that outpaced the general restaurant market, and it certainly outpaced the, the south of England. So I think that's been key. And it's particularly coming to its own over the last few years as we've seen what people call the kind of casual dining crunch. And a lot of these major chains have run into serious problems, of, of which there are many underlying causes. But that's really changed the dynamics in some cities because it means not only does, as these places close, whether it's Jamie's Italian or Byron Burgers or whatever it might be, as they close, it puts a dining audience back out there for other restaurants to fight for. It also makes sites available and it also makes staff available because staff is one of the big limiting factors, actually finding trained staff to work in hospitality. So that stuff gets hoovered up by the independents. You know, it's, uh, it's an ill wind, as they say, and not that you would ever wish anyone's business to fail. But I think, I think the independents almost lick their lips and think, OK, if the big guys are struggling, this is our time and they're stepping up. It's not just happening in Newcastle either. After coming runner-up on MasterChef The Professionals in 2016, Matt Healy has managed to open not one, but three new food establishments in his hometown of Leeds over the last two years, including the Foundry. I've seen a rise of independent restaurants. Um, I think that fast, casual dining thing, it's, it's, it seems to be dying on its arse a little bit, you know, like the Jamie Olivers and the Carluccios and those massive, massively rolled out brands. People are just losing confidence in them, I think, because I think that there's, there's, there's no personality to them. There's, there's loads of these chefs that have taken themselves out of the kitchen and, and, and sort of become entrepreneurs in their field, do you know what I mean? Because there's been an opportunity to do so. I think that's the most important thing, is that because these high street brands are failing, there's been, again, that gap in the market for to offer something different, you know? And I, and I have seen that a lot. Michael Jameson runs Manjeet's Kitchen in Leeds with his wife, Manjeet Kaur. They started out as a home delivery business in 2010 and were serving vegetarian Punjabi street food from a car at food festivals before going on to open a cafe and bar in the food hall area at Leeds Kirkgate Market in 2016. This year, they expanded even further with a new restaurant that can open later than the market allows. There's a community here of people who want to eat differently, want to know where their foods come from, want quality, want value for money, what they don't necessarily want to sit in a boring restaurant that, you know, with a waiter that's not coming over and giving you the dead eye and it's all a bit, bit silent, want a vibe, I guess, for another, want of a better word. Um, and the, the informal dining scene, the street food thing can offer that, I guess, to some extent. Um, we, in some ways, we've shifted away from it now because we've opened a small 35-cover restaurant in Kirkstall that, in many ways, I guess, is the opposite of the street food thing. But it, but it is very much an independent business. It's very much a family-run business, and it's very much has a connection with the people that that we are serving. Um, and I guess that's what you don't get in. I'll name some other places, but there are more in Costa, in Pizza Express, in all those places because they're not, they're not the people that own them and run them and not they're involved in that business. We are, we, we, we are welcoming those people into that door. We, we have a different relationship to our customers than chains have. Don't get me wrong, I like chains. You know, we, we, chains are good, they offer quality, they offer consistency, but the independents can offer something more than that. And that's why I think there's a little um, thriving of that scene at the moment. Tom from NRB says the rise of independence is something to be celebrated. And street food in particular is a huge part of that. The hospitality industry is one of those things, it doesn't matter 
what race you are, what gender you are, what educational achievement level you, you've made. All people from all walks of life start restaurants, they start food businesses. That doesn't happen in other sectors. You know, I, I don't want to pick ones out uh, particularly, but if you looked at anything from, I don't know, law to property development, you'd find that it isn't as open to everybody. The thing that I love is that food businesses are incredibly inclusive and there's all sorts of benefits to them. The money that they spend tends to go into local communities because they tend to buy from local suppliers. There's all sorts of wonderful reasons that these um, that restaurants are a force for good. So I'm, I'm quite enjoying at the minute the kind of rise of the indies. You know, I always, I always kind of bat for the little guy anyway. I, I'm always on the side of the underdog, but I'm really enjoying seeing as the restaurant market develops and as it becomes very fast moving and as audiences become more demanding it's the fleet of foot agile little guys who are really reaping the benefits and and street food is a great way of letting these entrepreneurs these startups have a go and the one thing i see i love seeing more than more than anything is businesses that start with uh, a street food stall maybe doing festivals or events or they take a site in a food hall and they end up growing beyond that they end up growing into bricks and mortar sites and growing into really quite serious operations but they probably couldn't have come in at square one and taken a huge site on on the main strip in, in newcastle or manchester or leeds but they found their way in and they were able to grow into that so you've made you've made the industry much more permeable in terms of the economics of it and i i think that is a fantastic thing as with Manjeet's Kitchen, several of the restaurants we spoke to for this podcast had originally started off as a street food operator before going on to open a bricks and mortar restaurant. Riley's Fish Shack was one of them, beginning life as a mobile bicycle stall before upgrading to their permanent shack on the beach. After taking part in the Eat Food Festival, Adam was inspired to start his own monthly street food event, the Boiler Shop Steamer. And that brought 5,000 people through every weekend and all the trade, you know, I think we, that must have been certainly well over 10 businesses started just because of that event and it's uh, you know it was, it was amazing to watch actually and how you know it's really encouraging to you know to, to see that you know how much you can help the small business by providing that as a platform and to test I think the whole thing about those street food events is you know you can you can test a concept before you have to invest a load of money you know people start thinking outside the box a bit you know you realize you don't have to spend 50,000 pounds on getting a lease on a cafe or whatever. Anna Headworth of the cookhouse also cut her teeth on food markets and says there are many benefits to getting started with street food. Um, so when I first started doing food things, one of the first things I did was I organised a little food market. And I did it because there was nothing going on um, and there was no food events and there was, there was food markets, but they were like really massive corporate, awful things. But now there's something like that every weekend and good things and there just seems to be a food festival constantly and they're, they're good and that just 10 years ago there was there was literally nothing and the, the amount of people who have chosen it to go into it as a business street food people and um, producers is just increased tenfold from when I first started it's less risky isn't it and then also you build up a clientele of people who know who you are and you just have to be going to a few of those markets and and then people meet you and know what you do and know you're good at what you do and then so when you go to then open where whether it be like something in the Granger market or a small restaurant or whatever you've already kind of built up your client base I guess. But when you do come to upgrade whether that's from a street food stall to a permanent spot or as in Anna's case from a shipping container to a much bigger premises how do you pay for it? I didn't have enough money 
to, to get it going. Um, so I decided to do a crowdfunder. And so we, we made a video, we put quite a lot of work into it. And we, we offered, um, in return for donations, we offered dinners, breakfasts, lunches, basically things that people could come and eat and drink here when we were up and running. Yeah, that was quite nerve-wracking. I didn't know if people would get behind it, but they really did. They were really keen. And then actually what that did was, since opening, um, it meant that people already felt invested in the place. So from the off, there was like a clientele there who were who had followed that, the crowdfunder, who had followed the progress of on-site, like through Instagram and Twitter and things, that watched us build it. And then so as soon as we opened, they all came at once. I, I knew I had nice customers from the old place, but I didn't, I, I didn't know how like warmly they felt towards us, I guess, which was really nice. According to Tom from NRB, crowdfunding is becoming increasingly common. So it is something that's becoming more prevalent generally. And it's because people connect with restaurants. People like restaurants and they like feeling part of the story. They like, they like feeling that they have been part of that restaurant's success, you know, feeling that they have a, a stake in it. Often not a literal stake, but just that they, they have had some part in making a restaurant successful. It, it's lovely. I don't think you'd get that same excitement out of investing in a plastic extrusion moulding business or something like that. There's something about the romance of restaurants. I think we all secretly yearn to run our own restaurant. The vast majority of us know how terrifying and exhausting it is. It's a really, really tough industry. So this street, the, the, the uh, Kickstarter, the funding, crowdfunding, maybe lets us do it in a very small way, vicariously, without having to work horrible split shifts and do kitchen clean down at one in the morning. Like the cookhouse, Manjeet's Kitchen have also recently expanded to a bigger site. And how do you open another place uh, from if you're a small independent that's paying your staff, paying your uh, suppliers, making a little bit of money, but you've not got that, that investment behind you or that capital to open another place. So we'd seen some successful Kickstarters before and thought we could probably have a go at this. Now here we are sat now, we have now opened that restaurant with that Kickstarter money and are delivering those vouchers now. So it's, I mean, that, I, mean that's, I guess that's what I'm talking about when I say about a community that would back an independent business to, to put 50 quid into a business that doesn't exist, but it will do in 12 months time, all being well, and you might have a meal for two, is it's quite a big commitment for a, 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 a customer. And people did that to us. And we, yeah, we opened that business. So it's, and it's been great because it's not only does Kickstarter give you that capital, but it also gives, it also gives us that, that audience, that community who are then going to come to our restaurant, which is what they're doing at the moment, touch wood. What's particularly striking about the recent boom in restaurants and cafes is that the increased appetite for them is happening at a time when disposable incomes are being squeezed. Figures from the Office for National Statistics show that the rising cost of living plus stagnating wages means that people in the North East are effectively £1,950 worse off a year than they were in 2010. It's a similar story in much of the North. In the North West, people have seen a real terms cut of around £1,400 a year, while those in Yorkshire and the Humber have lost out on the equivalent of nearly £3,000. But while people seem to have less money to either eat out or invest in local businesses, the boom is showing no signs of slowing down. As you say, uh, disposable income is being squeezed at the minute. 
but currently there doesn't seem to be any any kind of drop in the level that people are spending on eating out on going out drinking on going to nice restaurants um, and I think it is it's partly it's two things really it's partly that people want something to look forward to and going out for a nice meal going out for a drink with your friends is, is quite an important part of that and I think it's also that people are becoming more interested in experiences than things. Richard Clifford is from Leading Trade Association UK Hospitality. He warns that some pressures, including the ongoing uncertainty around Brexit, could burst the bubble. But you're absolutely right with the political uncertainty surrounding Brexit at the minute. As this drags on, businesses and consumers both want certainty of what's happening. So there's a potential that that might uh, impact the sector moving forward. There's also clear concern within the restaurant sector itself about access to labour after the UK leaves the EU. Current proposals that the government has put out there in terms of future immigration policy look like they'll be quite restrictive in terms of access to migrant work, which will clearly have a knock-on effect on the hospitality sector and the restaurant sector in particular. Uh, And there's reason to be concerned that if there is a boom, it may not last that long. And the real challenge that we're facing is business rates. Max from Bistro 46 says they are facing some of these pressures and it's preventing them from expanding further at the moment. The size of the restaurant where we're based, we have a high rates, high rent. So we're not losing anything, but we're not making anything. Uh, I don't know if people think that restaurants are just money, money mines, but it's really not like that. You know, you, you end up putting all of your money back in. We don't take any money out, but the restaurant's still here after four years. But we would like to do more and we would like to even, you know, the street food side of things. But with the staffing crisis that we have, we need to keep the core team within the restaurant and we can't take on other ventures and let our standards slip here. However, Tom from NRB says there's currently every reason to stay positive. Restaurants aren't immune to some of the problems and pressures that we see on the high street, particularly the cost of rent and rates, uh, which can be punishing, even even on the smallest high streets, you know, in kind of market towns and, and things like that, let alone in, in prime city centres. So that is an issue. Um, and, and staff costs, staff training, you know, there's other pressures or headwinds that are facing the industry but the independence is still thriving and interestingly it's particularly continuing in the in the north of England even with the fact that we're in uncertain economic times even with the fact that there's been an explosion in the numbers of restaurants across the UK and even with the the fact that some of the really big companies are struggling and closing sites the north of England is still showing growth in restaurant numbers. There is a slight dip nationally, but that is massively skewed towards London and the south of England. The north of England and the major cities up here, from Liverpool to Newcastle, are still showing growth in the number of sites and in actual sales, which is important because there's no point opening more sites if you're not generating more business. And uh, the sales data seems to show that more money is being spent. You, if you build more restaurants, more people eat out in them. Another upside of the boom in northern restaurants is that the region is finally starting to get some of the recognition it deserves. Having won several awards, in particular for their game, it's something that Max has noticed. Um, there does seem to be more of an appreciation of food. Uh, things like the Michelin Guide are spending more time up here and there's more and more restaurants each year get added. But I do think we are getting more recognition and people are actually sort of looking away from London and, and travelling and making it more of a destination. Anna from the cookhouse agrees that there is now much less of a north-south divide than there once was when it comes to national attention. Yeah, I think it's a thing that exists, but I think it is something that is being overcome more so than it being a problem. Um, we've had like national food critics here, um, and um, yeah, you do hear about the north being mentioned now and again these days. <laughs> it's something Adam from Riley's Fish Shack has also recognised. 
a lot of people used to say, oh, you know, like you know, a lot of these critics wouldn't go outside London to, to review, but you know, we've had Tom Parker Bowles and Jay Rayner review us, and we're fortunate for that. And then, and we also we, have, we, were, we were featured on a Channel Four program called Hidden Restaurants in 2016 with Michelle Rue Jr. and that that was the one that sort of opened all the doors because Michelle had said, oh, Jay, we should go and try this fish egg. And so we were quite fortunate, so I haven't witnessed that, really, that whole North-South divide thing so much. Matt has also received plenty of recognition for the foundry in Leeds. So this year, uh, our second year of business, we got into the Good Food Guide, the Waitrose Good Food Guide, and we got into the Michelin Guide. Uh, we've won numerous awards, Best Newcomer, Best City Centre. I don't think there's a divide. I think there's a... Um, I think what you can, there's a more diverse and more accepted food scene in London. You couldn't, for example, walk up Brigger in Leeds, which is the main street, and get Lebanese, and then get French, and then get a sushi bar, and then get a tapas bar, and then get an Italian restaurant, and it all be independent. You couldn't do that. But if you're walking through East London, Shoreditch, or whatever, you have that. You have those options. So I think the food scene is a little bit behind in the north, but it's equally as good if not better because of the people that are here the, 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 like I said the, the, the chefs that have just stepped out of the kitchen and, and become entrepreneurs and open their own businesses if you'd have asked me 10 years ago I would have said yeah but there's so many I mean the Lake District absolutely cleared up when the, when the guide came out this year you know there's more, more starred restaurants there than anywhere else in the country this, this time around um, so I don't think there is However, while it is true that the North is getting more recognition than it once was, the truth is there's still a significant preference for Southern restaurants when it comes to awards and guides. The Michelin Guide is just one example of this. Whether looking at all the restaurants included in the guide, or just the restaurants to receive stars, it's clear that the North is still lagging behind. The North East only has 23 restaurants included in the Michelin Guide 2020, including 16 awarded The Plate, 6 that have been given a bib gourmand, a one-star restaurant and a two-star restaurant. When compared to the population, that works out as 13 restaurants in the guide for every million people, the lowest rate in the country. It's followed by the Northwest with 15 per million and Yorkshire and the Humber with 17 per million. In comparison, London has 405 restaurants included in the guide, the equivalent of 71 for every million people. And it's not just London. The rate is also much higher in the Southwest at 37 per million and in the Southeast at 29 per million. Tom from NRB explains what might be behind this. I, I think there, there is a bias towards London um, in almost every walk of life in the UK, but particularly in restaurant guides, and I would say particularly with Michelin as well. Um, Michelin is, is an interesting one. They, they delight in being answerable to no one and being willfully opaque. That is kind of part of the mystique of, of what, they, what they do. I, I remember hearing something about, um, about the, royal, the royal family where they said, never complain, never explain. And I think Michelin are like that. You know, they refuse to rise to anything and they don't justify themselves to anyone. But the one thing I would say about Michelin is they... They do take the judging very, very seriously. I don't always agree with their choices, but they will send inspectors round on numerous occasions. The biggest thing that they look for is not just quality, but consistency. They want to know that if they give a star, someone isn't going to turn up on a quiet Tuesday lunchtime and have a really substandard experience. So there are a lot of visits. And I think, and I'm, I'm, I'm guessing here, but I think that many of their inspectors are based in the South or in London. So by nature, even if it's when they're off duty going to restaurants that they like to eat in, they're spending more time and making more visits to London-based restaurants so they feel more comfortable 
in awarding Michelin stars to London or South East based restaurants and they're not getting out and about on the ground in the north of England as much as they should uh, and equally there are some restaurants in London that have Michelin stars and I look at them and I think if you were in the north you would not have a star it's a London thing I know there are restaurants down there that to me are nowhere near the standard of some restaurants we have up here that haven't got star but that is not to undermine the fact that it is a very serious award and to those restaurants that have got a Michelin star it means an enormous amount to the chefs and it also more importantly or as importantly it changes their business as a, as a marketing hub the difference it makes to footfall to bums on seats to cash in the till it can be the difference between restaurants surviving or not so you know Michelin cannot be taken lightly it's fun to argue about it but fundamentally it does have a big impact on the industry it does matter and it is a prestigious thing. The prestige of being included in the Michelin guide is exactly why it's important that some northern restaurants might still be being overlooked however Tom also explains that there might be some upsides to the problem. It's quite good fun to be chippy about it, be a kind of militant northerner and complain bitterly and uh, get really kind of fractious about it. But equal, uh, equally and eventually, we just have to kind of get on. And there are upsides. Do we get the Michelin stars that we deserve? Possibly not. Are our property costs maybe a quarter of what people are paying in the West End of London? Yes, probably. So there's a different business model that can work up here that could never work in London. It's a point of view shared by Adam from Riley's Fish Shack. I think almost this, it, like, it, it's so saturated in London, I don't know how much easier it is to get people to sort of notice you because the, the, there's really good places opening up on every street. And so, I suppose, in a way, you know, there's, there's less competition. Although there's more, there's, there's less potential customers, you know, but if, if you are doing something a little bit different, you see, I think it's easier to stand out up here. Gareth from Brinkburn Street Bar and Kitchen agrees. There's so much in London, it's everywhere. There's, and, the, you know, it's, it's a tough place to live and work in London I think it's definitely got a lifespan on it where well, it did for me I did five six years there and I was done with it I had to get out um, but you know there's every type of restaurant and cafe and bar you could possibly imagine it's completely saturated dependable on where you are and to do well is quite a, a hard thing not that's not saying that it's not difficult to do well in the north either but I think good food and good produce stands out when you're in the north because there's a bit more of a like an honesty about it. Um, people care about what they're doing, and when you care about what you're doing, people reciprocate it. I find that a lot more up in Newcastle. Everyone's super friendly, dead nice and kind. The Geordies are a good bunch of people, and um, yeah, everyone's helped us out a lot along the way. Matt, at the Foundry, also sees the benefits of working in the North rather than London. I'm from Leeds, um, and I in all honesty, I probably couldn't afford to do it in London. But also, I think that people in the North would, would get me more so than people in the South. Plus, there's less competition. Uh, there's so many restaurants. I mean, there's loads of restaurants in Leeds, but there's so many restaurants in London. And sort of historically, Northern businesses, Northern restaurants that have gone to London have not succeeded and vice versa. So it was always going to be the north for me. We're seeing, I think, 
a slight reversal of the talent drain to London. More talented operators and chefs are choosing to either stay up here or return up here because they now believe the audience and the potential is there for them to do incredible things, follow their dreams, but do it in the north of England, not in London. And they can afford to do it on their own or with less investment or sooner than they would ever have been able to do it in London. So yes, the lack of awards is annoying, but I think we have to appreciate the upside. This is a land of opportunity for enthusiastic, ambitious young entrepreneurs. Thank you for listening to the second episode of The North in Numbers with me, Annie Goke. And thank you so much to all my guests for sharing their stories. Join us next time on the 20th of December, when we'll be looking at the effects of austerity on council spending and the resulting cuts to local services. The Northern Numbers is a laudable production.